always think that content has to be the glue between everybody because we're the ones who make the thing that gets used by everybody. Hey, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Content Briefly. Today, we're talking to Zoe Hawkins. She's the content principal at a company called Sunologic, a fairly technical product that she'll do a much better job explaining than I will. We covered a bunch of really interesting things. A couple themes that came up in this episode were curiosity and how Zoe creates space for herself and her team to be curious and go down rabbit holes, which so often leads to better writing and better content. We talked also about editorial debt, essentially all the stuff on the site that needs to be updated, refreshed, fixed, uh, improved like visually. Uh, she has a really interesting process for that. A lot of teams have this problem. I've never actually heard it called editorial debt, but I really like that. And I really liked her perspective on it. And she also tipped me off to a few tools that I had never heard of. And she described exactly how she uses them. So lots to like in this episode. I really enjoyed this conversation and I think you will too. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Teal. We talk a lot on it about marketing. And when it comes to your career, the product you're marketing is you. But marketing yourself can be hard, even for experienced marketers who could sell honey to a bee. And that's where today's sponsor, Teal, comes in. Teal is your personal career development platform. Whether you're looking to get promoted in 2024 or want to grow your career by making a pivot or landing a new role, Teal's the number one tool you need, especially if you're tight on time and not sure where to start. With an AI-powered resume builder, a job tracker, cover letter generator, and free Chrome extension that integrates with more than 40 different job boards, Teal's the all-in-one platform you need to run a more streamlined, efficient job search and stand out in this competitive market. You get a purpose-built app to help you track roles and applications, plus built-in guidance every step of the way and some awesome new features coming in the next few months. So if you're thinking of making a change in the new year, leverage Teal and grow your career on your own terms. You can get started for free at tealhq.com. Hey everybody, Jimmy from Superpath here with another episode of Content Briefly. This is the first one we're recording in 2024, but it'll be February by the time people hear it. Anyways, today we're talking with Zoe Hawkins, Content Principal at Sumo Logic. I'm curious to learn more about the title, the company, but maybe first, Zoe, could you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are and some of the work you've been up to for the past few years. Cool. And yeah, I'm Zoe. I have worked in content for... I guess over a decade now, which makes me feel very old, but you know, whatever. We'll, we'll just keep it in over, I feel over yeah. a decade. Yeah. <laughs> I originally was a video game and tech reporter. So I, I worked in journalism for a bunch of years. Loved it. It was like the dream job, fly all over the world, play video games, write about it. But then when I spawned a person, I got a desk job <laughs> and I've been working in content strategy ever since, predominantly in the tech industry. So I was at a series of startups and then have since landed at Sumo Logic, where I'm responsible for pretty much all things content. I mean, it's everything from blogs, to case studies, white papers, infographics, you know, you name it. I probably have touched it at some point in this role of, of content principle. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's been a journey. And I think I see more and more journalists kind of getting sucked into content marketing. And it's really cool to see and, and follow along. Absolutely. I think... The journalism background is just such a perfect foundation for content marketing for many reasons. And maybe the most relevant today, like as we're recording this in early 2024, is this shift that I'm sure many others are observing towards more, you know, kind of human content, like, you know, more subject matter expertise, more stories, more narrative driven stuff, probably a little bit less, at least for some companies, a little bit less focus on kind of the, the algorithm driven 
stuff. Do you find that in your own career? And does that affecting the way that you think about Sumo Logic's content this year? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think a big part of what I always think of as the one of the most intriguing parts of being a journalist that has translated well into being a content marketer is curiosity. I always joke when I'm in a briefing, you know, learning about a new product or a new launch that we're doing, you know, people will be like, does anyone have any questions? And I'm like, I will always have a question and a follow up question. Like that is the journalist in me. I will always have the next question ready to roll. And so I think that's so helpful in crafting a narrative or in crafting, you know, really authentic content isn't just like, okay, here's what it is. Just take it that this is it. And, you know, this is the information we have to work with, but really having that curiosity to be like, could we say this? Can we talk about this? Like, what is the next step or how would the person interact with this? And, you know, being really curious and then open to telling a range of different stories to different people. Yeah, I think that's really where the journalism background just marries so well into content marketing. I'm so glad you brought that up. And I'm so glad specifically you brought up the word curiosity. I Mm. feel that one of the problems that has evolved over the last few years in content marketing is that many companies run kind of more or less the same playbook. And like, that's fine because there's a couple things that are like evergreen, tried and true, like they work kind of across the board. But in doing that, I think many companies have also over-optimized the process and they kind of remove the creativity and the curiosity from it. So like, just as an example, like I every now and then will get a look at a content brief that's 1500 words long. It basically is like, you know, just fill in the blanks. You know, you only have to write a couple words to like turn this brief into an article. And um, there's so much of that. I have a lot of problems with content briefs, but I feel like they're just particularly representative of the absent nature of the curiosity in content marketing. So this kind of like leading into a question for you, which is like, how do you create space for it? In most tech companies, like there is a lot of emphasis on efficiency, process, SOPs, things like that. Like, do you have to of deliberately build in that space to allow people to be curious? I think so. I think so. And, you know, what you said about the boilerplate or the specificity of briefs and things like that, I think wouldn't be 2024 if I didn't talk about AI. And I think that's that's where so many people think that AI can do the work of content marketers. Because, yeah, if you had a brief where you were like, here's all the points I want you to cover. Here's how I want you to do it. Here's the layout of the piece. Then yeah, an AI can play the Mad Libs game and fill it in with some words and call it an article. But I think the way that creativity functions, to your point, like you have to build in space and room for things. And it's often you don't have much time. Like I often talk about like, you know, it's a one fire drill to the next, you know, where it's like, we're launching this, we need this, this was due yesterday, this and this, and you know, and you have a lot of, you're on the hamster wheel or, or in the grind. And even just recognizing like, hey, this is something I want to think about. I'm going to take 20 minutes and go for a walk around the block and like chew on this like while I walk and leaving that space for creativity, leaving that space for the curiosity. Like, I'm going to go think about this and I'm going to have some questions for you when I get back and we'll work through this. Or having, whether it's a meeting structure or an asynchronous thing where you're able to deliver content and say, I don't need an answer on this right now. Like, I want you to think about this. Ask me any questions. Let's go back and forth. And let's aim to have an answer by three o'clock, five o'clock, you know, to set a a deadline still. So you still know you're going to deliver the outcomes you need. But really building in that space to say, like, 
go take this for a walk. Go think about this during lunch. Like, not that you want people thinking about things. They're downtime, but like, let this kind of marinate a little bit and see what comes out, I think is really, really key to that creative process and also that curiosity. Because it's only when you start playing with it a little bit and like other connections come in that you're like, oh, actually, does this link back to that? Could we bring this around? And like, is this the story we're trying to tell? And like, bring those questions out that that I think is really meaningful. Absolutely. I feel that podcasting is like really nice medium for exactly this type of thing. Like, I didn't know you were going to say the word curiosity and then it would spark a discussion on it that we otherwise wouldn't have had, you know? Yeah. There was uh, the very first episode of this podcast, we talked to Sean Blanda, who runs content at a company called Crossbeam. And we were talking about how he fills up his editorial calendar. And what he basically said was, I just hire former journalists and I, they interview lots of people and they report back and tell me all the interesting things they found. And that's what we write about. I was like, oh, that's, love so, that's so simple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who knew it was so simple. I want to talk way more about content strategy and operations and all that stuff at Sumo Logic. But maybe first, could you just tell us the who and the what of Sumo Logic? Like a little bit about the company, what is the product, who are the customers, things like that? Yeah. So Sumo Logic founded in 2010, tech company primarily around log analytics. So over about 10 years grew through the typical startup journey, went IPO in 2020, which, you know, <laughs> was a journey. And then last year actually was bought by Francisco Partners. So now we are private equity owned. It's been like this journey in terms of ownership. As far as the product goes, the, the logs are key to who we are and what we do. So primarily working with developers and security teams, so like DevSecOps, everything from like security logs, but also like application logs, troubleshooting and monitoring, as well as like handling security incidents. So it's kind of the whole range of what you do with that data as it comes in and then you're analyzing it. So yeah, that's kind of the the core of what Sumo Logic does. And who do you sell to? Like, are you selling to like CIOs and CTOs? CTOs, CIOs, also like CISOs, like security side of things. But I mean, it's also practitioners who really buy into our product. Like they find it really easy to use. They love our language and search and all of that. And so, you know, often we'll end up having like a champion who is a SOC analyst or who is a SRE, you know, site reliability engineer who then needs this tool to do their job and, you know, runs it up the chain to the VP of product or tech or whatever that, you know, kind of oversees it. It sounds technical. Yeah. <laughs> how technical is it? I mean, from a content perspective, like how nitty gritty is the content? How much does it rely on subject matter expertise versus there's like a different version of content marketing for technical businesses where it's more about like making a, a business case for it as opposed to like appealing directly to a subject matter expert in, in words that they will, you know, understand and feel comfortable with. Yeah, it's pretty technical. I'll put it that way. Like I've kind of run the gamut in my career of like, you know, more accessible technology versus like super technical, like graph database stuff where I was just like, I'm going to take your word that this is correct because I don't understand half the words in this. You know, like I kind of had that range. I would say that Sumo Logic is accessible to a wide range. Like you can wrap your head around what we do if you're not technical, but the use and like we have plenty of users who aren't super technical, but we definitely appeal primarily to a technical audience because someone who wants to go like 
find out why the app is broken and read the log data, you know, the find the right log for why something broke is going to be technical. But in terms of like one of the stories I often tell that like just stuck in my head when it's like, what is Sumo Logic and what do we do? One of our customers is Ulta Beauty and they found using Sumo Logic, they found a bug that someone had released in their software that was giving away product for free. And they found it because oh, they wow. got they got an alert saying like your average cart size has gone down. You might want to go investigate. And they looked and they were like, our average cart size went down to like shipping fees and nothing else. <laughs> like, we're giving away free product. And then they were able to find the log of when this happened. They were able to see, oh, it's connected to this latest release. Roll it back and stop giving away free product and avert, you know, millions of dollars in losses. So like, yeah, wow. that's not a super technical story, but the actual person who was hands-on keyboard going, holy what do we do now? We're giving away free product. Yeah, yeah. They were the technical one who had to go figure it out. You know, they're the one who got the slack like, hey, can you find out what's happening? <laughs> yeah. That's so that's so interesting. Do you have the problem that many content folks at technical companies do where it's hard to find writers to to write for your audience? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm pretty lucky in that like we have a, a pretty robust team of product marketers. So they own their product areas and work closely with the product managers and the engineers to really understand like the different functionalities and ways things will be used. So they're really helpful in writing like a lot of the launch blogs or like explanations of things or like product feature, product focused content. But yeah, like finding someone who can really give like a detailed walkthrough can be super tricky. So I have like one of my star writers is actually, you know, from our security side and he's able to write like, this is how you do threat hunting. Like this is how you find out if someone's trying to hack your Microsoft Office instance or whatever. And I was like, what? You know, <laughs> so like, yeah, that... you know, that's pretty cool when I read it and like I get exposed to some of this content. But yeah, I'm always having to like reach out to our product managers, our engineers, like, don't you want to write about this? Like, don't you want to, don't you want to share your wisdom with the world? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so cool. Could you, yeah, even if, even if it's in broad strokes, just kind of paint a picture of Sumo Logic's content strategy today, kind of knowing that like these things t do tend to change. And like lately, lately meaning the last like, lately, year, there's been all the lots time. of, yeah, lots <laughs> of change. Yeah. So we have a consistent editorial calendar, which is not a strategy, but just putting it out there. You know, we have, Blogs that publish typically once or twice a week. So that's a consistent thing. And then we generally have these like product specific campaigns that run for, you know, over the course of the year where it would be like anything about, I don't know, CloudSim, for example, is one of our security products. And so we would then map out like the full funnel and what we would want to create for like, hey, we think a video would be really useful here. And we think like a clickable walkthrough would be really useful here. And we kind of map out the different stages and then build that out so that it can be used by our demand gen team and our social team and all of that. We sometimes have to work it backwards from events as well. So, you know, it's nothing exists in a vacuum. So often, like, for example, we'll know there's a big, like, Amazon has their big like conference at the right after Thanksgiving every year. Reinvent. We'll want to make sure we have some cool news to share then. So we all work backwards from that to make sure we have whether it's a blog, a solution brief, case studies, fresh video, whatever that is that would support that process. So yeah, there's a certain amount of like 
product focus led content strategy, then like some evergreen stuff that we're always pushing out. And then I also try and devote a certain amount of time to like auditing and going back on a consistent basis because I feel like you end up, I always call it like, you know, editorial debt is real. Built into our content strategy is this idea of addressing our editorial debt. So going back, thinking through like, okay, this was a piece from two years ago, five years ago, eight years ago. Like, what is this still doing on our website? Is it still relevant? Is it still useful? Is it still interesting to a reader? How can we update or optimize it to make it more compelling, more useful, or even just like more attractive looking? Like sometimes I look at stuff on the website, I'm like, yeah, yeah, this clearly has been through a few migrations. Like this is not looking fresh and it just needs a little bit of optimization. So I try and build that into our consistent content strategy as well, that we're not just launching and launching and releasing the latest and greatest news, but also going back and like keeping the older stuff up to date. Yeah. You know, there's a blog I used to work on that has since migrated at a site redesign. And every now and then I'll see a post that I wrote like many years ago and just notice that like maybe I created like a visual for it, which now like doesn't fit in the body column or like the colors don't work anymore. And it's like so painful, but it actually is really hard to make kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier to make space to do that kind of stuff. But at a certain size, meaning like, you know, total pieces of content on the site, it eventually you hit a tipping point where actually it, it makes more sense to address editorial debt than it does to create net new because potentially there's more gains, more value to be unlocked from updating or fixing old things in there is to, you know, continually pumping new, new, new into it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I consider myself like the queen of content optimization. Like I love it because I'll find pieces that I'm like, okay, this is however old, like it doesn't even matter how outdated it is, but it's like, you know, give it a modern touch. Like, you know, maybe this was the result of like the hamster wheel, like the industrial fallout of the content machine, (laughs) Um, you know, just something that looks a little bit, you know, junky over time or was like originally written to be way too like search term optimized and doesn't read like a person wrote it. You know, there could be a wide range of reasons why it doesn't really work anymore. But when I go back and I add links and I, you know, bring it back into our modern kind of structures or, you know, architecture of the website or just make it sound like a person wrote it again, I'll often see like 4x or even 10x jumps in that piece of content. Wow. And so, you know, it gets me excited because I'm like, we have a thousand blogs on our page. If we had the capacity to go back and update every single blog, you know, imagine the gains we could have. But of course, you know, trying to resource that and figure that out is a nightmare. But, you know, it's kind of like, okay, we'll do like chunks of eight or 10 or 20 at a time. And then, you know, let those results kind of speak for themselves and, and keep going. Yeah. You know, there's, there's like two types of content teams. There's the team that kind of like keeps a little bit of room on a consistent basis to refresh and update stuff. And then there's the team who like every six to 12 months is like, ah, oh, like there's, just, we got to like take a break and go fix some of this stuff. And you know, one, one term that we really don't hear very often in content marketing is inventory management. I kind of wonder if that will become a thing at some point, because at a certain size, like say if you have 500 blog posts or a thousand blog posts, like you need a way to keep track of that stuff. Like, do you have a process of your own? I don't know if there's any good tools out there for this, but like, how do you, how do you keep track of the stuff that is in need of updating? It is wild. It's the wild west. I mean, like 
we have different tools that we do use that I love. So I am going to give a shout out to Market Muse. They're basically the only inventory management tool that I found that works for what I need it to do. So they are able to crawl the whole website and pull out like these are orphan pages. These are pages that, you know, are ranking between three and 20 on Google for a topic something like that. You know, I'm able to pull out certain kinds of data to prioritize what to update, which is game changer for me. But to your point, like even just staying on top of what we have, I often like I call them gremlins, like they just appear and someone's like, hey, this is a blog that references a product we don't sell anymore. And I'm like, I have no idea who you are and what you're talking about, but okay, we'll deprecate the blogs. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, I'm right. not going <laughs> to... Not going to hold on to this if it, we don't do this anymore. But yeah, it's it's like I keep finding blogs that I didn't even know existed because I can't go back to 2010 and find every single piece of content ever. So things just appear and I'm like, I don't know who this is or who wrote this or what era this is from. But, you know, we're going to we're going to do something with it. Yeah, that's funny. You know, many sites because you might go through a couple different redesigns or like different teams in charge of content. And then like, you come in and you start going through all of it and it's like an archaeological dig. Like you discover like the different layers, <laughs> you know, or the different like eras and you can then start to kind of like make sense of what's going on. But that's a good tip on Market Muse. That's a tool that actually hasn't come up as much as I thought it would on this podcast. But my brief experience with it was that it was very good. Yeah. Any other yeah. tools in your toolkit that you find to be exceptionally helpful, either for this type of thing or other content related projects? I use obviously Market Muse for a range of things. So the inventory management is great. I also love them for research and I really enjoy their optimization tool. Like it gives you like colors and they light up and it just every writer I've ever been like, can you go optimize this in Market Muse? They're like, that was a delightful experience. I'm like, well, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to go let them have that as a testimonial. <laughs> I've also started using Demand Jump, so they're more of like a pillar-based approach, a newer company, and just doing some interesting stuff. Like, it's not a cluster, it's a pillar or something like that. It's pretty cool. They do, they just have a really great view also of your competitors, which I really like. So you could see your keyword rankings and your competitor keyword rankings and just kind of get a feel for how you're competing in your space and in your like target area. So I like that. And then what I'm starting to dig into now, I'm not an expert, so don't, <laughs> don't, no one message me and ask for help in this because I'm still trying to learn, is I'm trying to use something like Sixth Sense. So our demand gen team uses Sixth Sense, but I'm trying to build views in there where then I can see how many deals that make it like to this stage or that stage or whatever, touch various pieces of content. So I can make a segment for like, Anyone who reads the blog, anyone who checks out our glossary, people who read specific blogs, like, you know, if it's something from like the security team that writes like really technical how to do threat hunting kind of blogs, like, are those blogs showing up in deals? Are they leading to better deal sizes and things like that? Like, that's what I'm trying to start teasing out because I think, you know, the question I always get asked is like, you know, what's the ROI on this piece of content? And I'm like, I don't know. People read it and then they convert. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, it's like an almost impossible me. question to answer on like a per on a per piece basis. It's so, so difficult to, to drill down so that far. Hard. Yeah. And so it's just really helpful now, like trying in Sixth Sense to be able to at least tease out like, OK, in general, people who, you know, like. In my head, I think people who are reading the blog are still at the awareness stage. But
it might turn out that actually they're further along in the funnel and they're closer to consideration or decision. And that's really helpful for me to know and then to write more pieces that are helpful to that kind of audience. Okay. So Demand Jump and Sixth Sense, those are two tools I've never heard of before, which is great. I love finding new stuff. So since we were talking about content attribution, I would love to ask you about data. Are there Mm -hmm. a handful of metrics that you really care about? Yes. And it's gotten harder and harder to track things because my GA4 is not as solid as my universal (laughs) analytics was. Like I felt like in universal analytics, I was a whiz. And now GA4, I am once more a novice. But we really look at things like return visitors. I think that's a great indication. I obviously track organic traffic and click-through rates. But yeah, it's the return traffic. It's multiple pages or engagement rate or whatever you want to call it per session. I look at those kinds of things. And then I also try and really get like a, a qualitative approach as well. Like it's, I know we're all about data and metrics, but it's also kind of like, When I interact with our sales team, you know, if there's certain assets that they're like, oh, I always use blah, blah, case study or, oh, this one pager always gets me a callback or whatever it is. Like those kinds of conversations are super helpful. You know, I was just just on the site and your primary calls to action really stand out to me. And I'm curious how this affects content, like going backwards from that and the way you measure stuff. So you can start a trial or you can request a demo, but nested under the demo button, there's an interactive demo or you can book a demo. So there's really three options there, which is like kind of like a hybrid product-led growth thing where, you know, like that has been so hot for the past couple of years, you know, balanced along with this kind of, I don't want to call it old school, but like more traditional, like get a demo, talk to a salesperson. Can you talk about having both up there? Like how does that affect the way that you think about content and the stuff that you might measure? Yeah, it's um, it's super interesting because what I've seen in terms of the people who go through our interactive demos versus sign up retrial versus get a demo, like in the end, that person really just wants to be like, so what does this product do? Like, let me get in and see what you're actually talking about. Because you can say things like, you know, spot this and this or like get visibility into that, accelerate your insights into action, you know, all of these kinds of great messages. But in the end, someone wants to see like, if I click the button, what does it do? And so I think the free trial is always going to be great with that and like is a big conversion point for us. But at the same time, like, it's a free trial. Maybe they're not using the full range of data that they would have permission to bring in if they signed up for a paid account. Maybe it's a security team and they're not going to connect any of their own data. And so they might not see the full breadth of it, which is then why they would want to use an interactive demo and just kind of click around and see like, oh, okay, so this and this and this would be the workflow for solving a security incident or doing a threat hunt or something like that. Versus like, okay, this sounds intriguing. Now I'll talk to a salesperson and actually like let them do their pitch and like hear the whole thing. I mean, we all know it's like, oh, I don't want to talk to a salesperson, but I really want to see the product. So let me in and and let's take a look. I do find that like the what we often do in the content is where possible, I try and have like a certain amount of like recipe element of it. Like if you want to do this yourself, like here's the free trial, do this, do this, do this, and you can have this outcome too and like show like in three easy steps, this would be the dashboard you would be clicking through and seeing. Otherwise, like really trying to make sure we use as many like visuals and interactive elements that really show like 
for the person who's signing up for the free trial, for the person who's signing up for like clicking into a demo, like they really want to see the product in action. So the more that we can actually just deliver that in the content up front, usually the better the chances are that then they'll just sign up and, and talk to sales and, and, you know, get into the, the funnel there. I really love that. I think having a couple options is fantastic because whenever I come across a site and it's a demo only call to action, I'm just so hesitant to click because I know what's going to happen next and I don't like it. Mm. <laughs> and some, <laughs> I totally get, you know, like when we get leads for super, like I want to get on calls too. I want to say, I want to try to sell you in person because I have a much, you know, I, yes. I have a high degree of confidence that I can get it done, you know, but at the same time, like for most SaaS products, give me a screenshot. Like, let me just see something before you force yes. me to talk to somebody. So that's really cool. Exactly. Yeah. You know, earlier you mentioned product marketing, demand gen, a social team. Like it's at tiny companies, that's just one person. Could, could you talk about like the marketing org at Sumo Logic? Like you know, the different teams and then maybe specifically the content team, like who's on the content team and what are their roles? Content, it's the funniest org structure I've ever been at. Sumo <laughs> Logic, so I'm not just prefacing it that way. But content actually falls under product marketing okay. at Sumo Logic. So I report to the VP of, Product and content, <laughs> essentially, like they, they shoved content onto him. So under product marketing, we obviously have the product marketers, but we also have competitive intelligence and content. And then there's also a brand team, which owns design. We have events as well as, a you know, field marketing and events. We have demand gen, which I think field marketing and events, actually, they're kind of melded a little bit. And then we have corporate comms and social, as well as our, the just based on the personalities at play, the corporate comms and social also owns our customer advocacy and customer marketing. Okay, so that is very well-rounded. So my next question is, whenever a company has a really robust marketing org, there is a certain amount of collaboration that happens across teams. How much time do you spend doing that kind of thing, like working with product marketing, chatting with demand gen, like, you know, talking with social about a mm -hmm. campaign you're running versus like kind of working sort of within your own silo. I always think that content has to be the glue between everybody Ooh. because we're yeah, the I like ones that. that like, yeah, like we're the ones who make the thing that gets used by everybody. So like if I'm going to make, you know, if we're going to do a campaign around you know, insights to action and what that means in terms of like logging and taking what you figured out in the platform and being able to really have like a business mindset to it. You know, that's something that's going to need the product input to mean like, what do we mean by insight? Like, what is that? What does that actually look like at the product? But then we're also going to need, okay, how are we going to talk about this on social? How are we going to spend money to drive this with demand gen? How does this affect like how we show up at events and what our messaging looks like there? And so content kind of has to provide not just the assets, but also, you know, make sure that it fits into this broader strategy. So I feel like the bulk of my job is collaboration. And then like now and then I get to carve out an afternoon to go straight a blog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, do some editing and things like, like do my real job. But I feel like much of my real job is that like, okay, what does this campaign look like? What is the message we're trying to give like what is the story we're trying to tell with this latest launch or with this new initiative that we're pushing yeah so yeah definitely a lot of collaboration yeah yeah that's cool i've likened you know running a content team at a larger company to 
being the captain of a cruise ship. It's like you do have to get from point A to point B, but along the way, you have to serve dinner. You got to have water slides for the kids. Like you have a casino. Like there's a lot of other things that have to happen along the way. And there's a lot of wrangling that needs to happen too. But all of that has to happen to create the right experience, you know? So, and yes. so I think that content folks at smaller companies look at that. And they're like, I just, you know, I want to just do content. I want to get stuff out the door. And for a small company, that is probably what you should be doing. But at a okay. larger company, it is it is the wrangling, it is the alignment, which doesn't, which never happens by accident. That is so so important. Well, and I mean, also, I think at a smaller company, you are all of those things. Like you don't have to align; it's within you. True. <laughs> like, yeah. If I think about it, like you know, when I've run campaigns where it was like a team of one, essentially on you know very small marketing teams, or a team of two or three, you know, I'd be the one writing the piece, getting the social prepped getting the website ready to roll, you know, all like digital team and demand gen and social and content all was me. And so, you know, there was less need for alignment in terms of a conversation, but just internally making sure I was really solid on all of those different pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have, do you have any tips for staying aligned with your own team and other teams? Like, or do you, is everything documented somewhere do you you know do you meet frequently like is that a lot of async all of the above so we i think it really depends on the team and the project we recently did a project and i discovered that i love miro oh miro's um, the best was, right i didn't used to love miro because i was just like confused by it or it wasn't laid out in a way that really worked for me but we did this whole website launch and you could see like version one and then like, hey, what if we change this and this and this? And then design would swarm. And then I would swarm in and then bring like product managers or product marketers in and be like, does this, did I butcher the content? Like, does this still work? Does this still like fit what we're trying to do? And then design would come back and be like, that isn't going to fit. Come back, you know, yeah, and, like, yeah. we could just put it all in Miro. And so I love Miro for that. I am an Asana person. So like I do for project management, keep everything in Asana. Um, but at the end, I think it's also like, it's probably undervalued how important soft skills are, like just communicating, um, you know, having relationships with the people on different teams. So that's not like the only time you ever poke them is to be like, hey, where's this or what's happening with that? But to actually know them and be humans first just makes it so much easier to collaborate where then you're constantly slacking and messaging you know, saying like, oh, by the way, like I met with so-and-so and they said this and this about this project, putting it on your radar and like just having that rapport, you know, it, it's hard to be like, and then document it. Like it's not a, uh, you know, it's not an obvious thing to to talk about, but I think it's really, really vital for any content marketer or marketer or just human is to have those kinds of soft skills to connect with other people. Absolutely. I think that many careers start with hard skills writing, designing, programming, or whatever it is. And then over time, the importance of the technical skill decreases and the importance of the soft skills increase to the point where like later on, at a certain point, like, you know, your job is just to just get it done, figure out how to get it done. You know what I mean? Like build the relationships yeah. with people, keep the project on track, keep everyone on the same page. Like, even if you don't write a word of code or content or design anything at all, you know, 
But I hear you on carving out that afternoon for writing because like that's where, like, to me, that's where I find like the satisfaction of content too. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's funny. Like recently I ghost wrote a blog for one of our executives and I was like, oh yeah, I still remember how to do yeah, this. Yeah. Like, that's great. Like, I'm so glad. Okay, cool. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Zoe, thanks so much for doing this. I feel like in each episode, we uncover one or two things that are totally unique to that episode. And this one, our brief discussion about curiosity like really, really resonated with me. I think it will really resonate with with other folks too. And then also editorial debt, which comes up all the time in the Slack group in different forms. Like not everyone uses that terminology, but it's just like so, so important. And a lot of teams struggle to deal with that. So you've provided us with lots of good stuff to think about, some very actionable tips also. So thank you very much for your time. We'll definitely send folks to the Sumo Logic website. Always recommend after listening to an episode, go to the company website and see, see it in person, like interact with it. You know what I mean? I feel like that really, that's when you can start to take like, oh, Zoe said this and here it is. And like, that's when the inspiration occurs for a lot of folks. Love it. Where can we send folks to connect with you? Social profiles, personal website or anywhere else? Yeah, LinkedIn is where it's at. I, I used to be a Twitter junkie, but now it's just LinkedIn. So Zoe Hawkins on LinkedIn. You'll know it's the right one because I have sparkles on my name. So <laughs> okay, just, perfect. Just, hey. <laughs> We'll leave links to the Sumologic site and your LinkedIn in the show notes. And again, thank you so much for doing this. It's so great to meet you. And I hope we can chat again soon. Thank you so much for having me. This was a real blast. Absolutely. Take care. 